Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society, and this podcast is part of that effort. Today, we're going to have a very special conversation with my partner, Chris Zhang, who's the CIO and head of the family office at Interplay. Now, Chris's background is particularly unique uh, in the topic we're going to cover, which is the rise of China, because he is, was actually born and raised in China. Chris came over to the States when he was maybe 16 or 17, speaking literally no English. Uh, you'll hear more about his background as we kind of get into this conversation, but he breezed right through Penn, did a double major, graduated six months early, was one of the top performing derivatives traders at Morgan Stanley. So when you hear what you're going to hear about the Chinese culture and discipline, you can hear it in the context of his relative success in America. Uh, Chris has been here for most of his life now. Uh, and he is uh, very much culturally and integrated as an American. He's an American citizen. And so he's very much speaking from the perspective of an American who is going back to visit a homeland. Now, the, the background for this story, which is going to kind of lead into what you're going to hear, is Chris used to visit his family once a year, going back from the States to China, uh, and then COVID hit. And so it's been four long years since he's gone back. And I think being away from the country for a longer period made the change that's happened in the interim more startling. So he noticed a lot of change had happened in four years, and he was shocked by it. So he's going to take us through what he experienced. And the big headline, which I think Americans kind of know is coming at this point, we all know there's an if and when China is at this at kind of economic parity with the U.S., and then may or may not surpass us. Uh, the headline is, it's probably already happened. It's probably now. And so we need to, uh, one, understand that and throw away some of our um, now dated stereotypes that China does, makes inferior technology or they're not operating at the same level. I think that's just the headline you're gonna hear from Chris is from his experience, that's no longer the case. Part two is whether or not they're a little behind, a little ahead, or a parody, it doesn't matter. We are now operating in a world where it's an oligopoly. America is no longer the leading and exclusive world power, uh, and we're sharing that seat with another organization. And so all of the ways we operate internally, think about our international politics, everything has to adapt. There's pros and cons to all of this, uh, but the goal of this isn't to make anyone afraid. Uh, it's more to make people aware. My great hope in all of this is there's a lot of sword rattling between the two countries right now. Just because another country has economic success doesn't mean we need to go to war with them. There are a lot of differences in social policy and human rights and values. My hope is we can find more ways to reconcile and live together versus try to kill each other for really no productive end. So with that, I'd like to hand it over to a conversation with Chris Ang to get a very unique American perspective of what's happening in China. All right, Chris, got a big day today. I'm excited about this one. We've been talking about little snippets and bits and pieces of this story since you've been back from your trip. Mm -hmm. uh, but to get it all woven together uh, and to share some of your insights and have a real deeper dialogue, I think is going to be fascinating. So, all right, well, take it away. Share your perspective 
on the latest news out of China. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. Let me um, let me start with my own disclaimers this time. Um, the first thing I will say to everyone is, first, I, I'm American. Um, I share the vast majority of the polit- political beliefs and values here. And um, I've spent a big chunk of my life in China growing up there. Um, but I, have, I left at a young age. So I've really, uh, my political beliefs and my value sets are, are more Western than, than let's say, uh, versus the ones in China. The second, thing, the second thing I will say is I'm not a historian of China and my family does not have any sort of insider access to the government. We're sort of the definition of upper middle class. And my goal today is really just to be as factual and as objective as possible. But, but know that there's going to be some level of uh, subjectivity to things we'll be talking about because I'll be sharing through my own experiences what I saw as an, uh, as an observer having spent, like I said, half, half of my life effectively living in China. Uh, lastly, I do run an RIA and the SEC rules are very strict. So know that if I do end up mentioning some companies, I'm simply using them to illustrate a point. And by no means I'm, I'm advocating for, uh, you know, that the audience should buy or sell the company securities. With that, uh, let's, uh, let's start the chat. That's very clear um, and, and helpful context because I think there's going to be folks who hear some of this stuff and try to discredit it or just write it off as saying, well, he's from there, he's biased. And there's always that, but it's not, yeah. um, the context I think helps clarify that you, you're tending to communicate here. Um, I, I think it might be helpful for folks before we dive into your recent experiences in China, just to start with a little bit of your background so people yeah. can have that context and the lens through which you're looking. Sounds good. Um, I spent the first 16 and a half years. Um, I was born in China and I was raised there until I was 16 and a half. Afterwards, I came here, I came to the States for education and, and, and later on became a, a U.S. citizen. I've been a U.S. citizen for, for, for over 10 years. I, um, in terms of my experience in China, I've given a lot of thought about, <laughs> about this and I, I really trying to figure out the best way to deliver and describe what it was like. And it turns out, I think the best possible way for me to do this is actually just through a snapshot of my middle school, let's say a day or a week and what I was doing there. And I think that really encapsulates my whole experience. So if you don't mind, let me, uh, dive in and sort of describe to you like sort of from a first person perspective, what that was like. Yeah, do it. Um, this is first of all, a very special chapter in my life. And perhaps this sort of, this is what, this is when I was age 13 to 16, right? So this period, you know, thinking back is probably what shaped my understanding of sort of meaning and happiness in life more, more than any other. Um, so I was in China at the time attending this so-called military academy slash boarding school in Henan, my home province, which is about the size of the state of New York, but with 110 million people. Uh, the school I attended was ranked first out of 5,500 secondary schools in the province. So, you know, smart kids, very competitive to get in, you get the idea. But at this point, you know, if you're picturing sort of uh, fancy prep schools in Connecticut or up your side, let me let me help you uh, sort of destroy that in mental image a little bit. The, the boarding school is situated about an hour and a half away from the city center where everyone lives. 
every day the the wake up bell is at 6 a.m sharp okay just first of all you have to really put yourself think back maybe what you were doing back in when you're age 13 or 16. the wake up bell for me was 6 a.m sharp we would then have exactly 15 minutes to fold our bedding into this perfect rectangular box put on our clothes clean up run down four foot floors and sprint sprint a quarter mile to this outdoor track area all that in 15 minutes what happens if you're late by a few seconds you, you lose 10 points so what happens if you lose 100 points you get kicked out of school forever okay that's that's literally the system 100 points in one year so you correct have, if you have 10 slip-ups by a few seconds you're out you're out that's the, that's the deal and after taking attendance, rain or shine, we would then do our one mile morning run every morning. It doesn't matter what day of the year that is uh, in military formation. And then we do breakfast and then classes. Okay. So every morning, so it's just like that. a classroom, half um, the size of, you know, a typical classroom in the U.S. would usually host about 70 to 80 kids. And class day would run from 7.30 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. Okay. Uh, at 9.30 p.m., we would then usher back to our dorms, and then 10 p.m., 10 p.m. lights out. That's sort of a full-day schedule. However, 9 out of 10 days, the amount of sort of daily homework in middle school would be so overwhelming that we would have to basically continue doing them in bed, wearing this so-called, like, sort of like an LED headlamp, sort of pictured like coal miners. Uh, that's, that's sort of uh, what it was like. There was no hot water on campus, no showers, no air conditioning. We would have school just like that, six days a week, Sunday, 5 p.m. to Saturday, 6 p.m. And we would exactly have 23 hours every week, not in school. And usually seven or eight out of the 23 hours that we spend at home is spent doing weekend homework. So, you might ask, like, so how, you know, you're a middle school kid, right? How does the school keep us uh, on our toes academically? Well, uh, we will have those midterms, so monthly midterms across all subjects, over 10 of them. And the school would then sort of total up your scores and rank all students from number one to the bottom one. There are about 800 of us per class. Uh, and publish that ranking to all students, all teachers, all parents, and sometimes even local newspapers. So you would, not have, you would then basically know exactly how your intelligence and potential, quote unquote, potential compares to everybody else at all times. Okay, so it's, it's kind of forced you into this fixed mindset. Uh, Mark, you're going to say something. Yeah, so you're describing a pretty militant childhood boarding school yeah. dynamic, but you also mentioned this was the number one school out of 5,500. Yep, correct. Where the other... 5,500 schools like this too, or was this the outlier? Uh, I can tell you this is not the outlier. So we were the number one, mostly because of sort of academic achievement, but in terms of the structure to the school and how you spend your day, the amount of homework, all that is the same. Uh, but, you know, if I were in your position, I would ask myself, like, for instance, why would anyone want to send their kids there? Or, or you know, why would anyone want their kids go through this kind of experience when they're 13? Sounds a little too intense. Exactly. American disposition. Right. So, um, well, in a country like China, this is really where I really want to dive in. Education is life. We were part of this one child policy generation. 
And better education not only means better life outcome for yourself, but also for your family. So for the vast majority of the population growing up, there's just simply no other way to succeed. That's what my experience was like in China. And it really encapsulates the whole, all of it. And basically minimal childhood, uh, forget about out there and playing. You're just studying, you know, 12 hours, 13, 14 hours a day, starting from when you're 10. It's exam after exam. And you're carrying your whole family on your, on your shoulders. Right. So I think if you sort of see every um, person in China through this lens, you kind of maybe have a better understanding of why they are who they are and, and what kind of value set they might carry. Um, yeah. So that's, that was my experience. Se- sounds pretty high stakes and like a lot of pressure is there, yep. you know, it sounds superhuman. Did everyone rise up to this? Was there like a high suicide rate or did this, was it so, you know, something where this was so pervasive that it was maybe not quote unquote normal. Um, this is, this is very normal. And I would say that from a very young age, this idea that, that your life is not your own, it's, it's your whole family. It's your whole community that you're living for is really drilled into you. So frankly, a lot, I can tell you definitely a lot of mental health problems, uh, from all that, but suicide rates, as far as I don't have the numbers in front of me, but as far as I could remember and I could tell is very, very low because you're, you're just kind of happy to just carry it through. This is what life is about. And your parents went through this. Why not you? All right. So that's the truth of the mentality that everyone had. Um, yeah, that, that's my experience. And then from that to, to the U S where I went to, to sort of, uh, Connecticut for a, a public school, high school, and then later on, um, to UPenn and, and Columbia for, for business school. I would say that the, the hardest period of my life was, was, was at the, you know, when I was in middle school, but also sort of, that's also the same period that, that really taught me a lot about, uh, what family means to me, what education means to me and, and sort of reset my entire value set. So that's my very own, my own subjective experience. I kind of maybe uh, want to talk about more objectively what China was like, uh, 25 years ago in numbers, in using statistics, statistics. So I, I, you know, I looked through, I did some research and here's, here are some numbers I want to share. The first thing is China's GDP per capita, PPP adjusted back in 1998. Can you define PPP, please? PPP stands for purchasing power parity. So GDP per capita is, uh, I think everyone understands, but you really have to adjust that number by PPP, which is really just a basket of goods that, um, uh, so, th- you know, in simple terms, it's sort of your living expenses is your actual living cost, right? It's, it's not enough just to measure what you produce on a person, on a per capita level, but also what that means, uh, to a day to day life, right? How, how much an apple in China doesn't cost the same, uh, in, in the U S I and mean, it could be one tenth the cost, but you ingest the amount of calories. So you really have to adjust for that living expense. The GDP per capita PPP adjusted back in 1998 in China was $3,000. The world average for the same year was 7,300. So about 40% of the world average. And in the US for the same year was $37,000, right? So China was, I don't know, one thirteenth, one fourteenth of US at the time. And the next thing I would say is 
healthcare. So I'm just trying to give you know a sort of a broad spectrum of, of numbers so people understand what what was it like. And you can sort the pr- of adjust the prior stats. Them. What year are you giving the data for? What what is 1998? The, so I just picked a, a, a 25 years ago. That's exactly 25 years ago. I just thought that's a that's a good accurate number. This is by the way. Um, for those of you who probably don't know Chinese history as much, t- 2001 is when China joined the WTO. And that's when really a, it's, a, it's a turning point for Chinese economy, world trade, you know, China officially entered into center stage. So really anything before 2001, it's really a different era. So 1998, I thought was a pretty, pretty good year to pick. In terms of healthcare, so I used HAQ, which is Healthcare Access and Quality Index. This is in 1990 close, you know, around the same time, uh, China had a score of 49.5 versus U.S. of 73.7. And just so people understand what this thing measures, it's basically a scale from zero to 100 that's measuring effectively the death rates from 32 causes of death that that could be avoided by timely and effective medical care, right? So it's a proxy for how good the healthcare system is. China at the time was, was scored at 49 and a half and US was 70, 74. So quite a bit of a gap. Um, that's the next thing I want to talk about is education and literacy. So this is a, a pretty big shocker. So in 1982, China had the Chinese, Chinese literacy rate was 65%. Okay. So 65% of the population were literate, 79% for men, 51% for women. The Chinese tertiary education or higher education rate at in 1990 was 3.4%. Okay, so basically nobody uh, went to went to went to sort of uh, college or or above. That was what the country is like. The country was mostly a farming state and uh, with some manufacturing capacity, not really self-sufficient, dependent on a lot of international partners. Okay, this is the country. This is the sort of the China I lived in. Back in the nineties, that's really you know as I want to paint a picture of what China was like, and that's that's that. And I really want to talk about um, sort of the next big topic is what what is China like now these days. Um, we can you we can maybe start with some of the same statistics that I just mentioned, and then pick a few sort of areas that really that really sort of shocked me when I recently visited. Um, let's start with the numbers. So. GDP per capita, PPP adjusted. Same data. In 2021, China stood at 19.5 thousand, with a little bit of rounding, uh, versus the world, which is at 18.6. So remember, China was 40% of the world average. Now China has surpassed the world average. The US is at 69. So China, on paper, is still right around one third of what US, US is currently. But this is the part where we had a chat internally about this. Um, this is not what I felt when I visited. When I visited, just so everyone know, um, I couldn't visit the country during the pandemic. Um, the, the country effectively shut its borders from all foreigners. Um, I couldn't even visit family. There's no such thing as a, as a family visit visa. So there's, you know, before the pandemic, I used to visit every year. So I would see these incremental improvements. But there was a gap this time, four, four years to be specific. And what I saw when I visited 
recently uh, was shocking to me on multiple fronts. The standard of living, in a nutshell, the standard of living has really, really improved. So when I saw this number, this GDP per capita, PPP adjusted, it didn't really make sense to me. It didn't feel like that, that, you, that you know, Chinese standard of living is about a third of the US. In fact, to me, it felt like pretty equal. So then I, I did some digging. Um, turns out PPP doesn't adjust for services. Okay, it just for a basket of goods, which is really half of what our life expense is like. It does not adjust for healthcare and childcare. It does not adjust for uh, transportation. It does not adjust for education. It, do it doesn't adjust for a number of things, which you can imagine are a huge component of, of, of life expenses in the US. So I try my best and went in and adjust for that myself. Basically, I'm not gonna go through all the numbers here, I think that's that's a bit a bit more nuanced and detailed. But my conclusion was once I adjusted for just the headline services, childcare, healthcare, transportation, um, tax differential, savings, the difference now comes down to less than 10% between China and US using this proxy for standard of living. That would be more sense to me. So the, the one third number we see yeah. is misleading because the cost Correct. of labor and, you know, in all different parts of their life is lower. Yes. And so the average person there you're saying is living a very comparable life at this point yes. to an American. So Correct. you're, you're in town and I'm sure it's not the same brand names, but people are jogging in Lululemon, taking their dogs, sitting at brunch. It's yep. the same story. Yes. It's Precisely. no longer this agrarian, you know, there's not enough, you know, medical care situation that you left. Yes. China, for instance, China has universal health care and you pay nothing. Effectively, you go for a doctor, you pay on average, the average yearly expense in China for medical related and child care is $300 U.S. The, 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 the same figure in U.S. is, is, is more than 20x that. Right. So that's just a simple example. And transportation is, is a huge one. People commute to work here that people can, can you know, pay for gases and pay for gas and, and, and trains and subways in China. All of that is a sub subsidized by the government. And you, you pay one, R one RMB, which is about 13, 14 cents U.S. And you can travel anywhere in a city, in a mega city that's, you know, 10x the size of Manhattan. So a, a way to read this is. These KPIs may not be indicative, but if you look at yeah. kind of the social advancement, the technological yes. advancement, the quality of life advancement, yep. China is more or less in the zone of being on par with American standard of living. Correct. But that's just standard. That's sort of just from a cost perspective, right? I mean, there are other areas to consider. For instance, healthcare, I just mentioned previously. The same index, HAQ index. In 2015, I couldn't find anything more recent than that. But in 2015, which is almost a decade ago, China has, has gone from 50, remember the score back in 1990, to 74.2. And the US has, US has stayed at 84. So this is almost a decade ago, and China's already within striking distance in terms of quality of healthcare. Right. Um, some other statistics, crime rate. So that could be a huge part of standard living. By World Population Review, crime rate per 100,000, right? This is all crime rate, violent or not, in China is 
in the US is 47.7. So according to this one statistic, China is safer. But of course, uh, you know, you can question the validity of the data, you know, how it's measured, all these things. According to this one statistic, China is safer. And I frankly felt that way when I was there. Okay. Let's talk about infrastructure. This is a, this is a big one. I really felt the difference in the level of infrastructure when I was there this time. Specifically when it comes to renewables and so, you know, transportations, roads, subways, high-speed bullet trains, airports. In numbers, US in 2022 spent over a hundred billion in infrastructure. I try to really adjust, make it apple to apple. So by this metric, US spent over a hundred billion. In 2022, China spent over two trillion U.S. dollars in infrastructure. Now, a lot of that was to so that they can boost the economy because of the pandemic and all that. But that's a 20x difference in infrastructure spending, right? And and by the way, not a, not a lot of it didn't go to the simple stuff like building new roads, or a lot of it went to renewable energy. So solar, EVs, like you name it, right? All, all the sort of technologies that the big powers in the, in, in the world are competing with each other against, right? It's not just the old technology. It's the new technology that's being built. Related to this, I want to mention private sector because this is one of the bigger misconceptions, I think, that people think that private sector doesn't exist in China or is small. That is not true. More than 50% of GDP from China came from private sector and more than 80% of the employment from China came from private sector. And in infrastructure alone, over 90% of it is outsourced to private sector, right? So there's a huge collaboration between the government and private sector, just like in the US. How, how do those ratios compare to the states in terms of private sector employment? Oh, of course, the states is, is definitely way ahead, right? I mean, I, you can, you can, I don't know, I don't have this exact statistics, I couldn't find it, the Apple, Apple one, but I could, I, if you tell me that the states have over 95% GDP in private, private sector, I will believe that. I think mm -hmm. that's a reasonable assumption. But China is just as big in terms of private sector spending and contribution, right? So that's the part I want to just adjust um, people's mindset on. There is a huge and blossoming private sector in China. Right, because it might be half, but the population's three or four times larger. Yes. Yes. Right. And the opportunity set as well. Right. That's, you know, when, you, when if you're, you know, an, uh, an immigrant uh, and you're trying to weigh in your head where to go and where to start a company, throw away everything else, policy. Right. Like in terms of the opportunity set, China is huge. Right. So. That's life in China now in numbers, but maybe, you know, I think where we should go next is really pick a few specific sectors based on what I saw this time when I visited and really just give you a sense um, what the current lifestyle is like in China. So as I mentioned, I really, I just came back from China. In fact, I visited and my hometown is Zhengzhou, Hunan, which is sort of this, uh, in US newspapers, it's actually known as the iPhone city because that's where Foxconn has the biggest factory on the planet uh, where over 70% of the world's iPhone is produced. Um, over 85 or 90% of the iPhones in the U.S. are produced basically from there. Is there a comparable 
city in America that you might relate it to in terms of it's not the biggest or not the smallest? Like, is there a parallel you could draw to help us understand what this is? Uh, wow, that's a good question. I would say probably like the Detroit. Okay, so it's like mid, mid-tier proper urban environment. Yes, it's f- very hard to draw parallels. Not top three the, city, but no. a real, a legit city. Yeah, it's, it's a capital know. city of, or like a, it's a, it's a capital city of a, of the Hunan province. So it's really second secondary second tier city, but it's historically important. Uh, a lot of manufacturing, a lot of farming, massive, and it's hard to draw complete parallels because the concept of suburban, like a suburb, it doesn't really exist in China. It's either mega city. Or countryside, and countryside huh. where it's super rural. It's farmers stuck in you know 20 years ago uh, in terms of technology lifestyle, but vast majority of the population, basically the entire middle class uh, and and above, live in the cities. Um, so I will show. I think I'll, I'll share a screen a bit about you know just to give, give sort of a sense of the scale and 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 how it compares to U.S. cities, but. Um, let me let me maybe talk about sort of these specific sectors in that that I want I want to mention. There is a huge misconception uh, I think I really want to uh, correct here, which is, and it, it definitely was true before, but I'm just saying it's not true now. Chinese technology is a carbon copy or a bootleg version of U.S. technology. I hear this all the time when this conversation comes up. Everyone's saying, "Hey, they're just copying U.S. technology," and I, yep. I can't pronounce the name of the company. Hawaii, can you pronounce it for Huawei, me, please? Huawei, yep. Which Thank is banned you. by the U.S. government. Yeah. Right. Uh, you go on their website, and it looks like a clone of Apple, right? There's yep. FaceTime. It's called Meet Time. The icons are almost identical. Yep. Right? Everything top to bottom, it's Apple uh, cloned. Correct. And I'm assuming Apple came first, pretty safe assumption. And it's not subtle. Yes, even the all the iconography, it's like slightly changed. They're not even trying to hide it. <laughs> yes, especially the design, like you mentioned, it's just so, it, so it does reinforce this clone technology argument, the narrative we hear all the time. When you glance, yep. glance ten seconds on the website, it's obvious. Yep. Okay. So uh, ag- agreed. So everyone's saying they're just cloning the technology. They yep. can't actually make anything. We have nothing to worry about. I've heard that argument a bunch. Where do you come out on that? I, I would argue that that statement is definitely truthful. Um, let's say for the period between early to late 90s up until 2010, slightly 2015 or so. That's basically, in my own understanding, my own experience, exactly what, what's happening, right? China, U.S. comes out with a great product. China copies it. Use his own labor and, and technology, you know, basically swap some of the components, but make it 50% cheaper. And that's how they, it's sort of these companies stay competitive. Um, what I'm trying to argue is that's no longer the case now. It is quite shocking to me, frankly, um, because that was my own, my own understanding as well. Um, that's, that is no longer the case. The innovation cycle in China has really shortened. And you're seeing now that in specific sectors, which we'll talk, talk about, m- better innovation, better quality, potentially definitely lower cost, and better customer service, all wrapped in one, 
in a Chinese-made product with no components outsourced. That's the part that's shocking. Like, you know, it's not like the Toyota of the world or, or, or the German manufacturers where, you know, in, in cars specifically, where they outsource, you know, 99% of the components and they sort of do the design and that, that's it. These components are made in China. And in fact, they're exported out to other different um, manufacturers. And there's design in China and they're put together in China and they're sold to uh, Chinese consumers and also global consumers. So EVs, phones, technologies, so, uh, you know, of course, computers, projectors, air conditioners, you name it, right? These, these home appliances and, and, and cars is what really shocked me the most this time. I, for, you know, the disclaimer I mentioned previously being a, uh, running an RIA, I can't really talk about specific companies, but I strongly, strongly um, suggest and uh, the audience to just, just to go on a hunt, maybe just do a quick Google search. What are the top EV cars, EV companies in China? Oh, by the way, there's a recent Shanghai Auto Show, which is on YouTube. You can you can take a look and just go on their websites and take a look at these technologies uh, for EVs, for hybrids, for Huawei, for instance, the company you, men you mentioned, Xiaomi, another sort of uh, uh, used to be known as a copycat of U.S. technology company. Just look at go on their website and look at what they offer and the specifically compare stat by stat to an iPhone or Samsung. And and come to your own conclusions, which one's better. And then at the end, you adjust for the price. I guess it makes sense. Yeah. You know, we if you look at the last decades, yep. we had an innovation here or other countries. Everyone went to China to build it. Yep. They developed all the factory tooling technologies, infrastructure, know-how. Yep. And the design component, which is high science often, is yep. the most learnable in some ways because it, you, you have a generation that studies it. Yep. And then you go to your own factories and turn the speed up. That's right. So I, I, obviously, I don't know how uh, that sort of was progressed. Maybe it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it makes sense that some of, the, some of these technologies, designs and, and whatnot, um, were sort of uh, espionage and sort of stolen over time. And sure. now they have their own repertoire of knowledge, right? That's totally possible. I have no idea. But the fact of the matter is today's technology, today's design, and the quality of the design, right? That's the main thing. I sat in those cars myself and I experienced what it's like. Um, it's not what you would think. It's, it's very high quality material, very good in design features, um, technologies that you will see in cars that are usually in the 200 plus thousand range in a car that's actually gonna cost you 40,000 um, in China. And people are buying it left and right. Uh, not just in China, but Middle East. Yeah. Would you say it's on par with high-end US technology ahead or behind? Where, where, where would you, where's your intuition telling you based on your experience? And I know you drive a Tesla at home, so you're, you're living fairly frontier US. Right. Um, yes, I've, I've owned that Tesla since 2018. I've been a huge fan of Tesla ever since. Um, I would say in terms of the core technology in terms of battery, drivetrain, all these things, my argument is China is actually ahead, uh, not by 100 miles, but China is ahead. 
Um, in terms of interior design, Chinese interior design and quality materials is on par with luxury segments in, 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 in Europe and US. So think of the BMWs, the, the, the Mercedes in the above 100K range, right? But remember, but in terms of cost, in terms of the actual cost of this car and vehicle, it's nowhere near. It's 30, 40% of the cost of the US. So it, it makes for, it's a strong argument to buy these, to me, when I, when I saw it personally as a consumer, to buy these Chinese-made vehicles. If you're European, if you're a middle, somewhere living in the Middle East, and they are buying those vehicles, if you look at the stats, how, much, how many cars they've sold, uh, as opposed to the Tesla and you know, even some of the Korean manufacturers. Yeah, I, I was under the impression Israel, which obviously a very tech-advanced country, most yeah. of their automotive comes from China at this point. That's yes. why they're buying most of their cars. Um, yeah. is it, what's causing the price efficiency? Is it they've just got all the manufacturing there, they don't have to ship it because decades of developing the manufacturing sector, or is it uh, labor costs are lower? Why, why is the pricing so advantaged? Yeah, I mean, historically, China had to basically import a lot of technologies with tariffs and a lot of components from abroad. But now everything, is, as I mentioned, is manufactured and designed and sourced in, in, domestically. And then there's, of course, that labor cost component. And, and then the companies are so, there's such a, such a competitive landscape out there. They're competing on very thin margins. So these companies are not making a lot of money. Right uh, versus Tesla, but if you compare them to Tesla maybe five years ago, then that's more comparable, even though they have better market penetration. So, um, I think over time it's going to get even even more competitive from here. It's just it's it, the technology is becoming com commoditized at this point, and it's it's really competing on the on the thin margins and um, just just fascinating sector to to, to sort of follow and watch. So that's just EVs. I mean, we, 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 I, I felt, frankly, I felt like a little kid again this time when I was in China. Every room I walk into, I kind of just fiddled around with different things. Like, what does this do? What does that do? Because you just don't, don't see them here in, in the US, you know, like projectors, like things like this, just in a, in a home compliance world. It's, it's that to me is where the standard of living part that we talked about in China has really, really improved. You know, everything's automated. There's no cash anymore. You pay everything on, on, on this app called WeChat. And, and you, 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 I didn't see a single bill or coin uh, the whole two weeks I, I spent there. And, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's just a different lifestyle at this point. I think it's, it's worth mentioning maybe some, uh, it, you know, this is going back to where we started, which is my life in, in China and talk about this thing called, called work ethic. Um, this is the part where I really want to make sure the audience of this pod like, understand is that, you know, my experience, you know, working so hard as a middle schooler was not an exception. That was, that was just sort of everyone else's like, right? So if you're coming from that kind of childhood, by definition, you're going to work hard. You're trained to do it that way, right? You're, you're, there, there are no after hours so you you get it done right that's sort of the mentality uh in china and and i think if you're if you're if you've gone to school here in the states and you, you you probably met a lot of international students and some of them from asia and you know uh you've probably seen their sort of work ethic and what they do and 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 that to me is not surprising whatsoever 
So work ethic is, there's a real differentiator here. And why does that matter? Well, you know, maybe when people talk about the rise of China and when people talk about the potential dominant superpower it could become in the future versus the US, I, I would strongly encourage, you know, folks to, to look deeper and, and, and to go into the why. It's not as simple as, oh, having a huge population and, you know, uh, uh, the central government driving everything by themselves and forcing people to do certain, do certain things they don't want to do. It's, it's not as simple as that. It's, it's a lot of it to me fundamentally get, can trace, can be traced back to this mentality and this work ethic, um, which really just permeates through all different sectors from education, early childhood to later on. The, the last major thing that comes up in this conversation when I'm talking to people and I'm no expert, but I'm infinitely curious about everything. Yeah. You, you know me and you know that is yep. when you bring up China, everyone says, look, they have the one child policy. They have a net aging population. It's the shape of the population based on age demographics is really imbalanced and no society has ever survived that. Right. It's, yep. it's tectonic pressure. The, 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 the economy is going to topple over yep. at a certain point. Yep. Um, what, the way most countries tend to solve those dynamics is through opening the borders for immigration. Yep. You're painting a very attractive picture for a quality of life that yep. people from around the world would probably want to pursue. But uh, I don't believe China's had very much of an open immigration policy. Yep. Is that something you see on the horizon to solve the population issue? Or is the population going to undermine all of this great progress? Or is there some other thing we're not seeing in this? Because this is the, one of the few strongholds that people use, and I'm not saying they're right or wrong, as, as counter-arguments for why China's not, not going to be it. Yeah. In fact, that, you know, I share that view myself. Um, I'm going to go back to what we, we've talked about many times, which is what is the number one thing that Chinese government care, care, cares about? And that is stability. Everything, stability first, everything else comes second. So for that reason, opening up the border and, and really having a, a sort of a similar immigration policy as the U.S., to me, is a, a, a last resort type of tool that the US, the central government in China can sort of turn on. If, if I, I think that's a low probability event, but they might be forced eventually to do that. I think you know, based on the current policy sets, you know, if you, if you look at what they're trying to do is, the government is in China is trying to do their absolute best to turn around this you know, aging population and encourage people to have more kids. And there's a policy I wanna mention, which is really shocking to me, I learned about it this time when I came back is, um, you know, the government has decided that the reason people are not having kids in my generation is because of education. It's just way too costly for people to have more than one kid and support them through all different schools. So what the government decided to do is outright ban all after school activities. So classes for math, uh, English, uh, science, ban all of them at once across the whole country, except for sports and art, which is such a minority of classes that people will attend in my generation. So in that way, they, they want to basically 
equal the playing field and make sure the poorer parents can raise just as many kids as the more so rich families, right? So it's that's how drastic, as an example, the government is trying to turn around and have more population, at least a stabilized population. So until they exhaust all of these sort of steps, right, to, to, to try to turn around domestically without opening the border, they won't turn into immigration policy, in my opinion. But can they turn that on to save themselves? Absolutely. And if they do, and I hope I've made a good argument so far, they will attract people. Uh, you know, if, if let's say, imagine you're 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 a kid having the opportunity to choose from you're from India, you're from uh, Africa, you're from uh, the more developing part of the world, and you say, oh, do I go to the U.S. or I go to China? Twenty years ago, that wasn't a question, right? It, it, now that's becoming more of a question. Um, even in my own shoes, like, would I, you know, if, if I were born twenty years later, twenty five years later, would I choose to come to the U.S. again? I don't know. I frankly wouldn't know that. I would have to really think about it. The, the American knee jerk there is, but you're trading your freedom, right? There's yeah. a sense that, hey, look, it is a arguably a capitalistic autocracy. It's not a communist state anymore. Yep. It's capitalism as an economy, but it it all answers to kind of up to one person, right? Uh, and that's different than what you have in the states. Yep. Um, so the, 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 uh, the Western sensibility is that's untenable. How do you react to that? I, I, first of all, having lived the second half of my life here in the States, I, I couldn't agree more that this freedom, freedom of everything is so important. And, um, but I think this is a bit of a luxury. This is something I think we all have to adjust mentally, because if, you, if you're really thinking about this exact question with intellectual honesty, you have to put yourself in a mindset of a potential immigrant from developing countries. Do you care about making a living more? Or do you care in, in that position at that time more about freedom of speech? I could tell you back, if I really try to trace back my memory at the time, all I could care about is be successful, make a living and make my parents, make my family proud and, and you know, succeed in that way. And then when I, achieve that, then I worry about freedom of speech and freedom of movement, right? So to me, that's my personal view. And, and of course, there, I'm sure there's a segment of the population in the world where this is a, it's just a no-go from the get-go. But there's also a segment of the population that will care about that more. So of care about the economic success more than, than anything else. And by the way, the last thing I would say is you really don't feel it that much. Growing up, this wasn't really a concept to me. Yes, the government is definitely monitoring everyone's phones, WeChat, whatever. But in your day to day, if your goal is not to turn over the government and start a revolution, and 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 if your goal is just to you know work hard, make a living, become rich, uh, become successful, the government encourages you to do it, and they have no reason to shut you down. But if you become like the Jack Ma of the world, and where you, you, you have billions in assets and you're, you're openly on a world stage criticizing the Chinese government. Yes, they will take you down. Until there, you know, it's, you don't really feel it as an average citizen. Also, from a human capital perspective, it's a false choice for some people. The U.S. Yes. isn't welcoming everybody. And they're not welcoming everybody with talent. Our immigration policies are difficult in some ways. 
So for folks who don't have a lot of options, the U.S. may not be on the table. And so it may be China status quo or other. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of really talented, capable people around the world who are not in the U.S., who are not in a Western democracy, who are not in an advanced economy. Yes. And they just, they just didn't win on that lottery, that birth lottery, yep. for quality of life. Yeah. And, you know, rational thinking is presumes a good chunk of those people would make a trade. Precisely. And the U.S. now has the sort of the luxury to choose, right, who you, we want to take in. Um, China doesn't have to start there. China can start with more aggressive, taking everybody, and eventually, as its problem being, is being solved, it can then sort of close its border gradually and, and choose a certain set subset of the population, just like what the U.S. is doing right now. So, yeah, I, I you know, this is how I would think. But the, the population, you know, the aging population is a real, is a real problem. Um, it, that is the strongest factor that will slow down the growth of China and, and prevent it from being a, a world-dominant power. But there, it sounds like they're aware of it and they're taking action. Could you, would, would you do the visuals before we wrap up here? Yes. Just so actually, people who are watching yes. the YouTube version of this can see a little, bring this to life a little bit. Let's do it. Great. So this is my hometown. This is uh, sort of uh, where I grew up. And two things I will say. So first of all, let's, let's sort of put a scale around this, right? So uh, not sure if people can see the bottom right. There's a scale right here. It says two, two miles. And I pull up a, a Manhattan map, also with the exact same scale. And just so that people have, can compare it, right? So this is Manhattan. It's roughly, call it two by eight. So 16, 16 square kilometers. My province uh, now, right? It's roughly about eight by eight. Okay, so 64. So roughly 4x the size of Manhattan. And, and this, by the way, is just sort of the so-called, the, the, the Manhattan equivalent, right? The downtown, I'll call it. Right. And this equivalent. is not the number one city. This is... Oh, no. This is... Uh, this is again, Detroit. Um, correct. This is Detroit. Yeah, this is sort of... This is, yeah, this is an important city, uh, but it's, uh, you know, nowhere near. It's the middle of the pack, secondary city. Uh, and so that's... So people give a sense of scale there. And secondly... Let, I want to say, so I want to mention here, this, if people can see, this the entire top right corner. This is about a, a fourth, so basically more than a Manhattan worth of the city wasn't there a decade ago. There's farmlands, dirty rivers, villages, nothing. I never even visited for the first 17 years of my life. Okay, this entire bot, bot top right. And... In the past four years, so the last time I visited pre-pandemic, this portion right here, okay, this is about, uh, I don't know, I'll call it a third of that top right corner, wasn't there. Again, farmlands, dirty rivers, villages. And all of a sudden when I visited, it became a city. It became part of the city, fully integrated with the full infrastructure built in, the size of Manhattan, okay? The size of Manhattan was built in a matter of four years from the ground up, from the foundation up. In the not most important city Correct. in the country. Yes. Which is and a side project. They built Manhattan project. on the side. Correct. Uh, definitely not important from multiple angles. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's, not, it's centered in China, but it's, it's, it's not on the, on, the, on the coast. It doesn't have a lot of international population. 
It's just, you know, a middle of the pack secondary city. So what does it even look, look like? Uh, this is what it looks like. This is that, that exact area that I mentioned that wasn't there four years ago. Now it looks like this. This entire river that you're seeing is man-made. Wasn't there before. Okay, so just again, just so that people have a sense of scale. Okay, this building right here is the same size as, as, as the MGM Grand in Vegas. I visited this building. It's a, it's a convention center. And these buildings, you know, that you see on the side, they're all 40, 50 stories, right? So the typical story, typical building you will see in, in Manhattan. And for the, as far as you, your eye can see, okay, this entire region was built. Surely in the last 10 years, vast majority in, in the last four years. Okay, and, and they're not, this, these are not ghost towns. So, okay, that's another people, people think, oh, these are, you know, ghost real estate people. No one, Everyone is living there. At night, it's, it's fully lit on every apartment as far as you can see. Yeah, we've heard the narrative that they've, the government's done a top-down real estate build. There's these ghost yeah. cities. No one's there. It's a financial crisis in the making because there's no revenue against all the development costs. Yep. Does that re- does, how do you reconcile that narrative? There's definitely a, 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 some of that is definitely true, right? Um, what I'm all, the only thing I'm trying to say is that's not as true. It's not a full blown uh, depression in real estate market. That and these are ghost towns. That's not true. Like a lot of it happens in sort of more primary cities, you know, Beijing, Shanghai of the world, where there's such a hype over the years, and the per square footage has is two three x in Manhattan, and there's you know, just so much demand. So the real estate um, developers obviously has flooded those markets and built a lot of houses barely in, in the city. And a lot of people bought this real estate and they're real ghost towns, right? But for a secondary city where the population is 20 million or more, these are properties that people own and they live in, they live in it, right? These are not sort of uh, business buildings. These are residential buildings, most of the vast majority of them. And people do live in them. They're not ghost towns. It's very vibrant. You walk on the street, you, you, you get a sense of that. So for those of you who are maybe planning to visit China, my, my biggest advice is don't go to Shanghai, don't go to Beijing, don't go to Hong Kong. These cities have been developed for decades. If you really want to see, get a sense of what actual life is like in China and, and just get a sense of the development over the past decade and get a sense of the technology and infrastructure, go to a city like this, go to a secondary city, middle of the pack. And there, there are many of them out there and, and just, just, just take it all in. Just, you know, spend a few days and take it all in. So that's it. That's what I want to show on, on visually. Okay. Do you want to wrap it up and leave us with a headline here? Yes. I, what did all I, this I mean wanna, to you? I want to talk about one last thing and then I'm going to wrap it up, which is the, you know, the rise of the Chinese currency. I think this is the part where it's also hugely debated in, in, in the U S and, and I just want to provide some real basic statistics. Okay, uh, this is, by the way, from I think Reuters or, or Bloomberg. Um, uh, Bloomberg, I think. As of March this year, so a month ago, the yuan, uh, the Chinese currency, in its own in Chinese in China's own cross-border transactions, for the first time in history, has survived has surpassed the dollar. Meaning, so, people are accepting Chinese currency in a trade. Correct. From when they China. used to say, hey, pay us in dollars. Yes, correct. 
uh, I'm not talking about globally, so between U.S. and European partners. I'm talking about right. between China and his and, and Chinese partners. For the first time, the yuan has transacted in more volume and than than the dollar, 48 percent of it versus the dollar, which is 47. Right. So that's just happened last month, and you see all the headlines. You know, Argentina, Brazil, uh, for certainly a lot of countries in the Middle East, and even France has joined this pact. Uh, or in the process of joining this pact to to basically transact in 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 RMB and Russia for sure like you know for I'm not going to get into the politics but because of the war you know it used to be all dollars now because of sanctions and everything it's all in all in RMB now so the yuan is taking center stage um, uh, or definitely in the process to to do so and that challenges the reserve currency status of of the, of the dollar and. Will the dollar ever, my view is, will the dollar ever become a currency that nobody cares about? No, it, it will still be, uh, play a major role, especially in the West. But will Chinese yuan become a, a major competitor? Absolutely. Especially regionally, which is such an important part of the world in terms of manufacturing, in terms of you know, trade. Um, and the thing to watch is energy, right? As energy gets sort of, you know, with Saudi Arabia and all these important energy countries, do they transact in yuan or do they transact more in dollar? That's something that's ongoing concern, I think, for us on monitor. That's it. That's the last thing I want to mention before really we wrap it up. I mean, the, the, the overall message I think I want to send here is it is wrong to ignore and to keep the same misconceptions, to, to not adjust your own understanding of what China is like today and to have a, the same understanding of what China is like today as if it was stuck in 20 years ago. China is not the same country. It is advancing on multiple fronts. It is posting a challenge to the West. And the, the last thing we should do is ignore it. So everyone should be, should be, should educate themselves on all these new developments and, and just stay hungry. Stay, don't be, don't be sort of content and, and just, uh, you know, overall satisfied because we will be left behind if, we won't do, if, if the government and us don't do anything, don't, don't do something about it. And watch out for the talent flow. Watch out for the immigration policy because those will play major roles in shaping what the world is going to be like 20 years down the road. Thank you, Chris. It was terrific. Of course. Pleasure, Mark. And a, a double reminder here for everybody. Chris already said it, but he's an SEC-registered RAA, so nothing he said should be misconstrued as investment advice. Thank you for listening. This is the topic of our decade, right? How the new world order with two superpowers in the U.S. and China operates. Um, how we navigate this as a country, as a people, as a world is going to be very important. It fits into the broader, you know, multi-century narrative of autocracy versus democracy. It also fits into a more shorter term dynamic of how we all recalibrate to this new reality. And to the extent there needs to be any sort of violence to negotiate balance of power. My great hope is that we can find a way to collaborate with these other countries, uh, even with major differences in values that doesn't resort to war. Uh, we've had people on the podcast in the past who have informed us of some pretty terrifying statistics. 20 of the last 24 times the world superpower has changed, there's been a war. The transition from the British to the Americans in the 60s was one of the few 
where there was not, there were already allies at that point just coming out of World War II. Uh, my hope is this doesn't need to escalate and we can find a way, a peaceful way forward that works for everybody. More to come. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening.